0: Your fools born in sin, come on in. Each episode, we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning there will be spoilers. I'm
1: Justin, and I'm Brandon. And I did not just hit my microphone just now, I'd swear. It did. I watched it go. Well, luckily, it was before i said anything so i should just be able to yeah, silence it. <laughs> cut it out and be like and i'm brandon okay let's get to today's double feature the person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode this week was my pick and i chose whatever happened to baby jane and Goodnight mommy let's pop in the synopsis tape
0: Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is a 1962 domestic thriller written by Lucas Heller and directed by Robert Aldrich and based on the book by Henry Farrell. In 1917, Baby Jane Hudson is a child actress performing in vaudeville theaters across the country. While a sweetheart to the public, in private she's a spoiled brat who treats her older sister Blanche with contempt. As they get older, however, their situations reverse, with Blanche becoming an acclaimed Hollywood actress while Jane's career declines as she struggles to transition to film. Mindful of a promise to her mother, Blanche attempts to help Jane's career along, even forcing producers to guarantee her sister acting roles. One evening in 1935, Blanche is paralyzed from the waist down after a car accident, cutting her career short. Jane is blamed for the accident after being found three days later in a drunken stupor. Nearly thirty years later, Jane lives with and resentfully takes care of Blanche, whose wheelchair use mostly relegated her to the upstairs bedroom, and leads her to abuse at the hands of her sister. Jane is bitter about her sister's success and is preparing to revive her old Vaudeville career. When Blanche informs Jane she intends to sell the house, Jane suspects Blanche plans to commit her to a psychiatric hospital and removes Blanche's telephone from her bedroom. When Blanche drags herself downstairs and calls for her doctor for help, Jane beats Blanche unconscious, then mimics her sister's voice to dismiss the doctor. Their maid, Elvira, suspects something is wrong and sneaks into their house to check on Blanche, finding her tied and bound to her bed. Jane catches Elvira and kills her with a hammer. When the police question Jane after Elvira's disappearance, Jane panics and prepares to leave with Blanche. In a fit of infantile regression, she takes her sister to a beach where a starved, dying Blanche confesses that the car accident was actually her fault. She tried to run Jane over because Jane mocked her at a party, but when their car struck the iron gates outside their mansion, it broke Blanche's spine. She then dragged herself in front of the car to frame Jane, using Jane's subsequent guilt to manipulate her into acting as her caretaker. Jane barely processes this news before running off to buy ice cream for them from a nearby kiosk. She's recognized by two police officers, and when she sees the crowd that's gathered, she begins to dance for them while the officers find Blanche and rush to confirm her condition.
1: Goodnight, Mommy is a 2014 Austrian psychological horror film written and directed by Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. After undergoing cosmetic facial surgery, a woman comes back home to her isolated lake house and her nine-year-old twin sons, Elias and Lucas. Her head is swathed in bandages, with only her eyes and mouth visible. The twins are unnerved by their mother's appearance and are further taken aback when she begins to exhibit strange behavior. She pointedly ignores Lucas and appears to only acknowledge Elias in conversation. She also acts. Cr- and lashes out at Elias physically when he is mischievous or disobedient. The twins begin to suspect that this person may be an imposter, fueled by her sudden bad temper and an old picture that shows her mother with an unknown but strikingly similar-looking woman wearing identical clothes. The boys tie the woman to her bed and refuse to let her go until she tells them where their real mother is. The woman insists that she is their mother, and the twins proceed to torture her, burning her with a magnifying glass, supergluing her mouth, and throwing water in her face. The woman manages to subdue the boy's escape, but a trap set by the twins causes her to fall and hit her head, knocking her unconscious. She wakes glued to the living room floor, and Elias begins setting fire to the house to pressure her into telling them the truth about their mother. The woman firmly insists that she is the twins' real mother, finally telling Elias that Lucas's death in an accident wasn't his fault, meaning Lucas has been a coping delusion of Elias' all along. Elias challenges the woman to tell him what Lucas is doing, something he insists their mother would know. Since she can't see Lucas, Elias sets fire to the curtains, and the woman and subsequently burns to death. The final shot of the film shows Elias and Lucas walking through the cornfield to reunite with their mother, the three of them smiling and embracing as their image is overtaken with embers. Okay, Brandon, why did you pick these two movies? I chose these two films because both films deal with a bond between siblings. There's also an aspect of familial torture, which I find very weird and interesting. And uh, both films show siblings that take care of each other and also care about each other. And they also deal with um, siblings being responsible for the downfall of the other. And they also both have twist endings. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan pairing, but good. Yeah, I did think it was interesting
0: because I didn't expect the twist ending
1: in Baby Jane. So
0: I was like, wow, look at that. I have seen Goodnight Mummy before, but.
1: I wanted to point out uh, before getting too deep into the discussion that I'm going to talk about I'm going to touch on some different psychological th- disorders that are very complex. I am by no means an expert. I took a general psychology class once and that was it for a music degree and I so I don't have a degree in psychology either, but I do think that framing the films in this way, provides some insight into the characters, and it's important to the themes. So, jumping right in to uh, both of these films are technically, like, psychological horror films, and I feel like that phrase is, like, really weird and loose, because it, to me, feels like a psychological horror film would be, like, a horror film where the enemy is, like, playing mind games with Whoever, like Silence of the Lambs, for instance, you know? But in this case, it's a psychological horror film because all of the characters have problems. Well, I think and that they do not deal with them well. I think psychological disorder is meant to,
0: or psychological horror is meant to be because the root of the horror
1: involves psychology in some way. For instance, like um, Elias, I discovered through my research, um, Elias has what is known as capgrass syndrome, which is where you are convinced that, you know, somebody who you are familiar with is a doppelganger or an imposter, and you don't know what happened to the other person. And it's a very uh, complex syndrome and it's can be caused by other conditions um, such as um, schizophrenia or epilepsy or, you know, something like that. And, um, Similar to how, you know, anxiety and depression can be not really symptoms, but they can branch off of like PTSD. Mm-hmm. And in the other film, in Baby Jane, Jane um, is, makes a good case for having like a possible bipolar disorder where she has... You know, on screen, she has a lot of instances of, of manic phases where she's just constantly like, I got to do this. I got to get my career back up, you know, and then she goes through de- depressive phases as well, which is all exacerbated by her alcohol abuse. And it's possible that it even develops into schizophrenia by the end of the film, because um, it's a very weird and kind of scary disorder in itself, because it has so many things that it can cause and so many things can cause it itself like it can be hereditary and it can also manifest after like a huge psychological trauma so it can it can just happen if you aren't you know dealing with psychological well it might not even be that you're not dealing with psychological traumas uh, well, you know, it's just something that can happen. I think it can arise out of that. Right. It's still something that is not super. It's still kind of a gray disorder as to what exactly causes it and what exactly it looks like when it manifests itself. It's it's very interesting. <laughs> so I think that you know Jane and possibly um, Elias could both you know have these things that come from it is possible that they come from schizophrenia or they develop into schizophrenia by the end of the film and also both films deal with characters that have delusions so you know you've got siblings that cannot accept their own realities so for example like jane cannot accept the fact that she is a fading child vaudeville star and that no one really remembers her and she wasn't really super successful in films. Mm-hmm. And Blanche on the other side seems perfectly sane At the beginning, you know, through most of the film, you're like, oh, that's she's the good guy. But really, you know, she can't accept the fact that she is living in a wheelchair and she like watches you get a brief moment of her watching her old films and then critiquing them on what should have been better. And I told the director he should have done this. It would have been better. And so she's just like constantly kind of marinating in this yesteryear kind of thing and by the end of the film you find out that it's her fault that she's in the wheelchair because (laughs) her sister was making fun of her which yeah at first i was like oh she caused her own accident and then i was like wait a second her sister was making fun of her because she has an alcohol problem and her solution was i'm gonna run her over with the car (laughs) clearly not two stable characters in this film like yeah, her yeah.
0: Salute, Like the explanation when they when they revealed it, I was like, well, oh, that's surprising. So she caused it her her own injury, and then she was like, because you made fun of me at a party, and I was like, <laughs> that is a, that is some that's a new magnitude of, of pettiness. <laughs> I know you it's don't like crazy. my dress. Fuck you. <laughs> it's and like, I think it was her dress, wasn't it? It was wasn't it specifically her dress or something that she was making fun of.
1: I don't I don't remember. I just remember her being like, You just always made fun of me. You were so mean to me, blah 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 blah. I mean that's so, true. But Yeah, it was true. But that's that's not how you deal with family squabbles. I'm gonna run my Rolls-Royce into you at the gate. I would have even understood I,
0: I could have even bought it if it had been something like I mean, not it wouldn't have been Right or good, but I I would have bought it if it had been something like, you know, oh the studio is going to actually fire her because of her sister or something where like her career Mm -hmm. was at stake. But the explanation just
1: being, you know, yeah, you made fun of me. You made fun of me, so you gotta die. So now you gotta die. Yeah, oh man, and you know, in 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 Good Night Mommy, you you also have a plethora of unhealthy characters. Um, you've got Elias, who can't deal with the fact that his parents are separated and divorced. And he can't deal with the fact that his brother was killed in some kind of unknown accident. I had two suspicions. So there's like two opening shots, you know, where mm-hmm. they're like playing tag in the cornfield. And they go exploring in the cave. And then they go swimming. And both times, Elias is standing kind of in the background. And then Lucas disappears well yeah in the cave he disappears and elias keeps falling after him going lucas my real inkling was that he drowned in the lake because there's that shot of them swimming Mm -hmm. and you know elias is just kind of paddling around and he keeps saying lucas lucas and all you see is those bubbles yeah in the distance that's my personal
0: and so my that's where i'm planting my personal flag to that that lucas uh drowned In that scene, and I think that maybe I'm wrong, but that's where that's the vibe I got for why the parents split up. Like I I got the vibe that they split up because of Lucas's death, but then enough time had passed because I know that for me there was some confusion until I rewatched the movie for why the mom got her surgery in the first place. Yeah, I thought that at first that it was a car accident. And that she was getting reconstructive surgery. But then there's Mm -hmm. a scene where they go into her bedroom and they can, you can see the like plastic, the specifically plastic surgery stuff. And I was like, oh, well then I'm wrong about that. So then it has to be, have, have been enough time at this point for them Mm -hmm. to have developed the patterns of like pretending Lucas is still alive. Because I know that she talks to her husband or sorry, her ex-husband about it on the phone. Cause she's like, I'm not going to play along anymore.
1: Yeah, I had the same thing. The first time I watched it, I was like, I'm pretty sure that, you know, I didn't for some reason, I didn't realize that the dad, you know, was they were divorced and so I was like, oh, the dad and Lucas, you know, both died in a car accident. And so, you know, they're they're dealing with that trauma. And then now I realized I was like, no. The parents are divorced. Lucas died probably in a drowning. And I can't tell if it's before or after because of how the film presents itself. But I know, because it's entirely possible that, you know, uh, because she's kind of a minor celebrity in Austria. She's like a TV host kind of thing. And so it's possible that maybe he didn't, I don't know you know how guys are sometimes they're like i don't want to share you with the world and so he could have just left because she's becoming more famous or some bullshit Who yes. knows? or it could have been because of lucas's death that's also possible yeah i mean it could lots have been anything, of things that are but... open-ended in the film that don't get resolved but that's what makes it great is because you can just constantly have discussions about what you think about it. Yeah, that ambiguity. And is that's great. another thing uh, I forgot to mention was that the mom, you know, the first time I watched it she seems fairly normal, but then you re- you realize that she is very also kind of delusional like she can't deal with the fact that she's lost one of her kids. And it's having a detrimental effect on the other kid. Like, she literally can't deal with it. She just spends her time, like, hiding. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a scene, like, she's got all the shades drawn. She's hiding in her bedroom. She, like, eats in bed to avoid the kids. That was
0: actually kind of a funny scene. Like, when the kid comes in and she's asleep. And then when he leaves, like, the camera holds on her for a second. Like, she's asleep. And then she, like, pulls cookies out from under the covers and
1: starts eating them. (laughs) Well, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, that's funny. But then the second time, knowing what I knew, I was like, that's really sad. Yeah. Like, your kids are just kind of running around, and they just, like, want to hang out. It kinda you know? has they kind of have shades of the Baba came Duck, in, you know, like. Yeah. And she was just like, no, I'm just going to eat in bed with my face like it is you know especially the second time I watched it I was like she's not dealing with this very well like she just kind of was like well let's just go to our vacation house which I have listed for sale without telling anybody see is that Presumably, their vacation
0: house because I thought yeah. it was their actual house like it looked
1: no I think it's just their like vacation house because they kind of look up stuff about her but they also talk about her when they do that guessing game and you know she's on TV she's like a host for I don't, can't remember I I think it's Vienna uh, some it was TV show that broadcasts out of Vienna yeah I know Vienna's the capital of Austria no that's a sausage No. <laughs> I hate you. (laughs) So I think she broadcasts somewhere out of Vienna, and I think they have a house there, but they also have this lake house where they can kind of go to get away from things. And I think that's what she's using it for, to like, if I can just get them away from the city and from all the cameras and the whatever. Yeah, I just thought that that was a really fascinating aspect I did not think about at all. Uh, but when I initially paired them together, like, my initial thought was, um, let's see, Baby Jane tortures Blanche, and then the kids torture the mom, ah, uh, it could work, I'll shove those two together. And now, I'm like, oh, wow. You know, these films, they work really well together, because you've got, you know, the all these possible psychological syndromes, and nobody's really doing anything, like, proactive to help each other. Like, everybody's just kind of alone (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. or they make excuses you know like i feel like the mom kind of makes excuses for her kids because you know she's like he's just dealing with a lot of stuff instead of being like this is hurting him a lot and i need to find him help like actual help you know with a therapist psychologist anything and same Mm -hmm. thing with you know baby jane and blanche like they both need help but clearly, Baby Jane is more kind of in need of help since she has an alcohol problem. Um, it's yeah, so it was that's a, very, a really um, fascinating sort of, aspect of of both of these films is that like everybody has some kind of problem, and no one wants to deal with it, and so it just kind of snowballs into these horrible situations that happen. And I think it's pretty. I don't want to say that you know it's reflective of real life, but at the same time. You know, in like a a small way, it kind of is because, you know, if you have some kind of issue like this and somebody recognizes it, rather than just, you know, especially in families, I've noticed, like if if somebody has Mm. an issue and they're like, well, blah, 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 they just want to be protective of that family member. But it's not doing any good for them. Like, it's still just masking the problem. It being yeah like, I mean it's
0: know. sort of like the a way people will be like oh we, we don't talk about Uncle Bobby's um, drinking problem or uh-huh. whatever yeah. because because it, it would it would cause a disruption it's better if we just ignore it you know yeah. Just, so yeah I I agree it, it's one of those movies so it's funny that people will often criticize um romantic comedies because there's always the inevitable third act breakup. Oh, where yeah. the couple like there's a misunderstanding and the couple breaks up so that they can get back together people always say that you can resolve those plots if people will just talk to each other because yep. there's always that that comical misunderstanding where it's like no you don't understand but this is one of those this, both of these movies it was kind of actually like that like <laughs> if you had just if you would talk your problems out yeah then it would be resolved but like instead blanche just bitterly holds on to like years of resentment of baby jane and then jane does the same thing yep years of resentment for having to take care of her sister elias just snaps like just loses grip of reality because of his 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 brother and and his his mom's like nope i'm just gonna not deal with that i'd rather not sort of like uh like i was gonna say it kind of reminds me of the babadook in that way Mm -hmm. and that the mom is like in that movie the mom constantly disengages from her son she she just lays around she sleeps in late she often uses her son as an excuse for like why she's late to work or something like she has her own problems but she kind of bundles all of that into the my son problem and this mom kind of does the same thing like her son is clearly going through a horrible time but Mm -hmm. she's like that's out there and if i just close the door then i'm good i can just focus on me and have a self-care day it's a mom day (laughs) yep I did some research on fame, because the I feel like the fame connection's a little thin for Goodnight Mommy, but I got curious especially about... So whatever happened to Baby Jane feels like such a specific time story. It felt. I, I thought that it was directly referencing Shirley Temple. I thought that the movie was like literally about Shirley Temple, <laughs> just like with the name changed because she was like that. That when I think of childhood star, especially like curly ringlet childhood star. That's what I think of because those are the commercials that we watched growing up where they're like time-life <laughs> videotapes where they're like, call now, dial 1-800-SHIRLEY-TEMPLE, and you can have and Shirley yep. Temple. And the crackers in my soup. Like that I remember those commercials. Yep. So that's what I thought the movie was about. So then I was curious about like, what does being a childhood star do to you psychologically? Because fame will already fuck up a normal person. Like you already see that just people becoming famous makes them start to act weird and I was looking into like what does fame do to a person psychologically being famous is at best transformative if not out and out harmful to someone's psychology so I read this study by uh, Donna Rockwell and uh, David C Giles they performed a study on a bunch of celebrities and they found that there were four specific phases that everyone went through as they became famous there was the love hate phase uh, where they they love the attention and they love the adoration that they get. But they also kind of hate it because they feel guilty and they don't feel like maybe they they deserve the level of adoration that they're getting. So they have this complex cognitive dissonance of desiring more attention, but also not feeling that like they deserve that attention. Then they go through an addiction phase where they become, not just acclimated to the changes, but they, they kind of, they crave attention and they, they want to, they want more attention and more praise. And as attention fades, they will do more to, to regain the attention There's an acceptance phase. Uh, This is where they, um, it's not that they accept that they're famous as in like, yeah, I know I'm famous, but it's more of a being famous completely upends and transforms their lives. Their lives post-fame do not resemble their lives pre-fame. They're they're entirely different ways of existing, including like their lack of privacy, the hyper, the way people hyper, hyper fixate on their decisions. And they 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 come to accept that they, they learn that they, they basically come to say like, yeah, that's the price of fame, though What are you gonna do? Like people people are gonna hate you and uh, hide in your bushes and watch for you Like that's just <laughs> something that happens when you're famous. I don't know what to tell you And then uh. there's the adaptation phase and that's where they start changing how they behave In response to things. So like the reason celebrities like often like won't make eye contact or when they just sort of keep walking um, whenever you're even though you're calling their name. Normal people, if you like if you shout, hey, Brandon, you you would like turn around and be like, huh, who's calling for me? But celebrities literally learn to tune that out because they're so used to people calling their name that they have to learn to just basically ignore that. So they, they go through this adaptation where they they and they can even become reclusive and and mistrustful they can sort of withdraw from all of society and become paranoid so that's what it's like on an adult childhood it's it's even worse so the way that jane and like this the studies that i was reading because a psychologist ginger clark was talking about uh in a couple of articles i read uh, she was saying that if parents are able to keep every other aspect of the child's life controlled and normal. And uh, there are continued boundaries and rules. Those are the kids that do well with childhood fame. If you don't have a really stable parent unit that's setting bound that's setting limits ahead of time, then eventually those roles get flipped as the child becomes more powerful. And the child becomes the parent, but they're not ready for that um, level of emotional or practical responsibility, which is why they start to spin out of control. And you actually see that in um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, because she wants ice cream and she wants things this way. And she wants things that way. And she like throws this big tantrum and that's bad for their image. But also, you know, uh, she has become the parent basically. Yeah. No one's willing to say no to her cause she's the one making money. And even into adulthood, that's how she thinks of things. I bought this house with my, yep. this is my money that I earned from my stage show. So you should be grateful to me. Like she eventually essentially thinks of herself as the parent, as the power uh, the authority in the relationship. Kids that are celebrities, that hyper-fame, kids learn to be people by attending school, interacting with peers, having parents that tell them what to do, learning through mistakes. That's how kids have to learn, is um, they have to do things, and then the parents say, no, you can't do that. Or they have to do things, and then another kid go, hey, I don't like it when you do that. But kids that are famous, have such a power differential that they don't really have peers. They can't play with other regular kids because those kids don't have the same ground level of understanding that a famous kid does. A regular yeah. kid can go home and fuck about. And the only person that's going to get mad is their mom. But a famous kid can go and fuck about and end up on the news. And then the entire country can talk about them. When people do stuff like that, it, it's there's so much more attention on that screw up um that's Mm -hmm. actually i was reading an article uh written by mara wilson uh she played matilda and in the remake of miracle on 34th street and in i think mrs doubtfire um and she she was talking about how she had a really good childhood she was relatively famous but she wasn't like hyper famous she didn't get to like macaulay culkin levels of fame yeah and she had parents that that you know, restricted her and gave her boundaries and and stuff like that. And so she, she talked about how she was always grateful. She didn't have like uh, Olsen twins levels of fame because yeah. she had a, she was relatively protected by adults, both her parents and people on set. Whereas, but she, even she still had, like she said, there's a, she told a story about how one time she was on the red carpet and one of the reporters asked her a child about Hugh Grant's prostitute scandal like being arrested for (laughs) buying prostitutes and she she was a child so then because of that i started looking into the only two examples of famous children from that era that i could think of which is judy garland and shirley temple and what started out as mostly just researching literally the only two childhood stars i could think of became this crazy great compare and contrast of two very different lives lived they were born very close together. Judy Garland was born in 1922, and Shirley Temple was born in 1928. Both of them started doing uh, dances and performances and singing and stuff around two and a half to three years old. Judy Garland was two and a half. Shirley Temple was three when she started attending dance classes. Judy Garland, by the way, uh, she was no, she was born Frances Gum. She performed with two sisters. They were the Gum sisters, and she was known as Baby Gum. and uh, of course she was she was a vaudeville performer her parents were vaudeville performers her relationship with her mom her mom was her manager and judy later in life described her mom as and this is a quote mean and jealous because she had absolutely no talent (laughs) uh one of her co-stars from the wizard of oz described her after her death as a child who never had any childhood she was a child who never grew up the, she also went through the like executives constantly called her fat and talked about her weight. And they were very concerned with keeping her at a particular weight. So they put her on a diet of broth and lettuce to keep her at the weight that they wanted. And at one point at one of the studios, her diet was chicken soup, black coffee and cigarettes. That's what yep. she was allowed to eat
1: that was a lot uh during the wizard of oz if i if i remember correctly she had to she was uh what they called like growing up too fast and Mm so they requested like they had to put her in a binder to Mm -hmm. like reduce her bosoms and then yeah they were like okay you get chicken soup coffee and as many cigarettes as you want like that was the thing and i was like yeah um yeah so she made
0: 12 films as a teenager and was under psychiatric treatment by the time she turned eighteen. By the turn, time she turned twenty-three, she'd had three nervous breakdowns. One of her husbands, that she, one of her early husbands, he described that she tried to kill herself like twenty times over the course of the year. Mentally, she had a horrible childhood. Uh, her mom was very much the stage mom, shoving her into movies, sort of living vicariously through her daughter, Shirley Temple. On the other hand, she described her mom and her as a team. She said, I was absolutely bathed in love. She still went through some crazy shit that I was reading online. One of her first films, her first film that she starred in was this movie called Baby Burlesques. This movie (laughs) is wild. It was... So you remember in The Office how Angela liked pictures of babies in adult clothes? Well, that's kind of what this movie was. But what this movie was was like toddlers reenacting adult movies and so like some of the roles that she played in this movie and there were like a series of shorts where they reenacted the plots of famous movies at the time and she played an exotic dancer and a (laughs) mistress to a senator like and they didn't know how to say their (laughs) lines they wrote them down phonetically so that the kids could say them she later she described that in her uh she wrote an autobiography and she called it a cynical exploitation of our childish innocence Some people didn't believe that she was actually a child. Um, Some people thought that she was just a small woman, kind of like the kid that played Isaac in uh, Children of the Corn. He was, like, in Mm -hmm. his 20s, but he looked like he was, like, 12. And people thought that about her, that she just looked very young, but was actually, like, a grown woman. And this guy is apparently a famous novelist, Graham Greene he wrote this review for one of her movies questioning whether she was actually a child and the way that he describes her is like extremely sexual i didn't write it down because i didn't want to have to say the words but uh, i'm linking to like several of the articles i link to have his exact quotes and they are fucking horrifying Oof. but like even her like there are these there are these echoes of like childhood loss of childhood she her mom protected her at all costs apparently one of the stories that i read her mom they they convinced her to leave off the lot for a little bit to go pick up something for shirley and while she was gone they scared shirley to make her cry because they they had a scene where they needed her to cry and when her mom got back and found out that they did that she fucking lost her shit and never left her alone on set again she defended her daughter like crazy shirley temple Her star starts to fade after a while. She did some roles as a teenager. She got some roles as an adult in the 50s when her movie started being replayed on television. um, She had like a kind of like a Mother Goose type story time thing where she would like read to kids. But then eventually that even like that kind of faded as well. And she rather than like spinning out and pursuing fame, she went on to run for Congress And became an ambassador to Ghana and Czechoslovakia under two different uh, Republican presidents. So very different lines (laughs) for having very similar origins. They went in opposite directions. So then I was curious, I didn't find as much about famous parents, but I was curious, like, what happens if you have a famous parent to a kid? I did find a study where they interviewed a bunch of children of famous parents obviously all the data has been anonymized uh, so they they refer to them as like patient one patient two or respondent one responded to stuff like that but there were sort of six common aspects between most of the kids having a famous parent carried expectations to be as good as the parent to live up to their public image many mentioned that they're like absentee parents because their parents were always busy doing stuff and you kind of see that reflected in goodnight mommy because yeah even though her son is clearly emotionally damaged from the death of his brother she still went and got plastic surgery and felt comfortable yep. leaving him alone admittedly uh with her ex ex-husband but still she left and left him without a mother during that time there's an increased idolization of their parents beyond what's all children already idolize their parents, but children of celebrities even more they see how much everyone else idolizes their parents and it puts them in this like godlike status.
1: I think that's reflected in Good Night Mommy too. Like not the not the, you know, the one their actual mom who's had plastic surgery, but there's this idea mm-hmm. of mom and how wonderful she is. And she would, you know, never do that to us. And she would That's always, true. you know, see us, you know, so there's this heightened level of, of idealizing, you know, mm-hmm. their mom.
0: Yeah. You even see that with like the, the song, because she doesn't realize that they, that, that, or the Elias. I shouldn't say they, I should say he, she doesn't realize that he, has obsessed over that tape that she made of them yeah. where she like sang them a song from from the hospital but to to Elias that was everything and so like later she thinks that lullaby goodnight is is Lucas's favorite song but in Elias's mind their favorite song is the song she sang them from the tape anyway so uh, another thing that the kids get used to is uh basic privacy they they get used to basically having a lack of privacy not just that people will be aware of their business but they are aware that if they screw up their screw up will become news because of their relation to their parent and could potentially damage their parents reputation so there's a certain pressure of like having to uphold the family name and and then of course the obvious one is that everyone everyone agreed that they had access to better resources and a a leg up if they wanted to follow in their parents' footsteps or join an adjacent industry. They could because their parents are famous, and so they have connections where they could become famous if they wanted to. In fact, that was actually a really interesting section because a lot of them, the kids that were interviewed were like, I mean, I guess I'll go into what my parent does because, I mean, what else am I going to do? And it was just fascinating to hear what some people would like think of to be a dream job, and these kids are like, man, I guess they'll go into the family business like their parent runs a fucking bookstore or something.
1: But the first thing I wanted to talk about, um, or I guess the next thing I wanted to talk about was interesting thing that both films share, which is that the characters and their issues are reflected within their environments. So you've got Jane and Blanche, and they live in this big, elaborate kind of art deco mansion. Most of the time when you see it, it's kind of, it's not really dilapidated, but it's kind of like older and run down. You can tell it's out of style. Like it hasn't really changed since they bought it, because it's out of style with the rest of the neighborhood, because the rest of the neighborhood's becoming like a suburb. And so it's kind of just this big, reminiscent like, just a big reminder of their past and how this used to be a ritzy part of town and now everything's moving on without them and they're still stuck in the same house with their same problems they don't want to deal with they don't want to, you know, change all this other stuff, so... And it's all reflected in the setting of the house. You can see there's great, great cinematography at the very beginning where you see Blanche and her pet bird. And her pet bird is kept in a cage all the time. It's very similar to Blanche in her situation because she's always, you know, kept upstairs in her bedroom. She's not, you know, allowed to go anywhere else Mm -hmm. without her sister's help. And And she literally can't. Yeah. Because the only way
0: she can is literally crawling downstairs
1: yeah that's another fascinating thing like how much their environment it kind of creates space distance everything some so much stuff is about distance like blanche lives upstairs and presumably jane's bedroom is downstairs she spends a lot of time downstairs so there's this whole upstairs downstairs distance Mm -hmm. where they don't really hang out much you know and they just like bring food and talk sometimes and so she basically just has to stay up there and occasionally she gets visits from elvira that's about it and so she's distant from the world she's just got her tv in her room and jane's kind of the same thing she's got like the parlor and like all the downstairs stuff where she keeps all of her old shit her baby jane dolls and all that stuff and she's just like distancing herself from the present just constantly reminding herself of everything that she used to be which kind of you know sends her on benders but also it kind of makes her happy it's very strange balance and so and it also creates a power dynamic between the two where jane has like all the power and blanche basically depends on jane for everything which is how it was like kind of at the beginning of the movie when they're kids because jane you know is like the star and Blanche is kind of off in the wings, literally off in the wings in like the second shot of the movie, which I thought was kind of funny. And um but then you know it it gets reversed when Blanche becomes an actual famous movie star and a good movie star, and Jane is only given parts because of like the writer on on Blanche's contract or yeah. something. So so yeah, it's interesting how there's this power dynamic, and then it switches, and then it switches right back after the car accident. And then you can see, you know, all of Jane's old sheet music, all of her memorabilia, and like every single song. I don't know if you noticed when the camera panned across the piano, but every single song on there mentioned Daddy somewhere in the title was talking about Daddy or something. And so it's like constantly showing how she's like longing to return she misses her dad obviously but it's just I, much more of like a longing to return to childhood back when things were yeah. simpler and she could just scream and get ice cream you know I it mean, was a simpler time the moment when she performs i wrote a letter to daddy
0: it's really unsettling because she's oh yeah grown ass woman in her 50s at least yeah singing this infantilized I want a hippopotamus for Christmas-esque song and it's just weird hearing it come from such an older mature woman like yeah she kind of reminds me sort of not exactly but she kind of reminds me of Amy Poehler's character from Mean Girls how she's constantly trying to act like a teenager (laughs) so she dresses like her daughter and tries to use like the hip slang like yeah it's really unsettling because it's not someone who's comfortable with their age. They're striving not just to reclaim their fame, but to almost literally return to childhood.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think that scene was probably where I really appreciated um, Betty Davis's acting like mm-hmm. I, I I've only, I'd only ever watched one other movie with Betty Davis in it and even in that movie I was like wow she's really good like of course she was famous because she was just a really good actress and she worked hard you know and she did all of her you know stuff and she's really good in whatever happened to Baby Jane like she really leans into it she has a reputation she had a reputation all up until then of being this actress who was pretty And, you know, was very beautiful in all the glamour shots and stuff, but was completely not afraid to just go, you know, and fuck up her image and be ugly for the sake of a performance, Mm. because it was about the performance for her, not, oh, I could be glamorous, which (laughs) is funny because it's opposite of how Joan Crawford was, because Joan Crawford... Had spent so much time crafting her own image, like the way she drew on her lips, the way she styled her hair, that like everything was specifically unique to Joan Crawford and could be mimicked. And so every time you saw her, you would be like, oh, that's Joan Crawford and that's her style. And she was not known for going out of the box and doing that because she was like, well, I have my image until... Betty Davis, you know, got more fame for doing that. got more recognition. So she was like, oh yeah, I want to do that too. So then she starts playing more bitchy characters. It's fascinating. There's this whole dynamic with like light and shadow in this scene where Mm -hmm. Blanche is sick and Jane is talking to her. And one of them is like in shadow and one of them has a lot of light on Mm -hmm. their face. And as the scene changes to where they start, talking about more revelations about themselves and their relationship, those like the kind of switch where mm-hmm. the other one gets to be more in light and the other one kind of fades into shadow. It's fascinating. So and that good, kind man. of stuff really makes, you know, a film. It's the same thing. There's a lot of that same stuff that's in Goodnight mommy, that there's just so many little things that require you to like watch it several times for you to get it because mm-hmm. i know like the first time i watched it, i was like oh was crazy it wasn't exactly like the trailer because i was expecting more like scary and it was just more like uncomfortable <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it, it gave me it reminded me of, of hereditary because the first time i went to go see it the trailers were all like scary and i was like not so but just made me very uncomfortable yeah through the whole movie which is great it's that's the point it's supposed to do so you know it it achieves what it's supposed to do it does a great job so like in uh good night mommy you know um so in in whatever happened to baby jane you got all that stuff that i mentioned before the old house the piano the two different bedroom like sleeping dynamic power dynamic kind of thing in good night mommy it looks like they are kind of far from the little town and they're surrounded by woods they're surrounded by farms and i think that's really representative of the families the family units inability to deal with their own reality that you know Um, the mom is separated she's trying to move on with her life and she's just lost a kid and so she can't really move on with her life and also deal with the loss of the kid and so she can't help Elias with the death of his brother and so they can't be there for each other and then so Elias you know has to basically like deal with things himself which he does not do very well yeah I mean and uh, and and it also creates uh oh sorry go ahead
0: I was just gonna say they're they're isolated like in that house you're right because they're they're far enough away from the town that the boy that that alias has to like run to that town and mm-hmm. it's also small and it looks like there's nobody that lives there <laughs> the scene we see there's the one person and then the deacon and the pastor and that's it yep that's the only three people in the entire town the rest of it's apparently just empty um but like they're isolated in this house but they also isolate each other like, from yep. each other. Like, the mom is... Not only is she living in the middle of nowhere on this beach house, surrounded by farmlands. Like, there's nobody there helping. The, the yep. ex-husband isn't, isn't there. Even though they're divorced, like, you would think that that would be something where they would come together for the kid. Or maybe they'd mm-hmm. have grandparents in. Nothing. It's just the mom. Uh, once we know that Lucas isn't real, it's just the mom and Elias, And that's it.
1: Yep. I know. It's, it's like... And that... You know, creates a a power dynamic within itself because the mom is just always like in her bedroom Mm -hmm. for a lot of the film. And that's like where she lives. She's just like in the bedroom for most of the, well, not most of the movie, but for you know all of her recovery so her kids are just like fucking off doing whatever they want just running around around the house around the woods you know like they're just going everywhere you know it kind of gives them a lot of the power because they can do whatever they want and they have weird locks in the house so they can like lock each other out of rooms i don't know that was also a confusing thing where you could like lock it from the inside but also the outside like all the rooms had keys and i was like oh that's weird this is an old school house they had those like big master keys
0: those like oh yeah
1: yeah I thought that was that was really interesting how that creates so much isolation there's like all these levels of isolation on isolation Mm -hmm. and it's really reflective of their situation where they just don't want to deal with their own reality so they just escape from it or they try to Uh, another thing that I thought was really interesting was all of the pictures in the house that decorate the house are blurry photos of people like you can't see their faces what they look like who they really are which you know is also reflective of so many things about the film because mm. you know you can't you know the first time you watch it you don't really know if that's their mom or not because you're kind of from the point of view of the kids until you realize that you know that Lucas has been dead and but you've been seeing him the whole movie so that's another like false facade that you've pre- presented through the whole mm. movie so like it's I, just it's really fascinating
0: I love the blurry pictures thing because what I what I love about the way they use perception and and identity in Goodnight Mommy is is so neat because those pictures are blurry and so it's not clear who's in those pictures I kind of thought that maybe those pictures were of the mom because They look like they're feminine figures and they look like they're roughly her, you know, her height and build, but they're blurry enough that it's impossible to tell. But like, and it's not the kids. It's always the mom that is obscured Mm. like the kids have their own interesting dynamic because they're there's like that duality and that repeat because they're twins and there's two of them but the mom is always obscured most of the movie her face is obscured and we can't see it until the very end the one time that we see her go off like without her wrapping until she actually takes it off we don't see her face she takes the wrapping off in the woods and then her head is shaking around obscuring yes. her face and then um, yeah. at another point she's like in the kitchen doing something i can't remember what she's doing but the camera it's under the stairs and it's shot to where the stairs fall exactly where her head is so you can't mm-hmm. see her face so there's always this this distance and this this ambiguity about who she is this and and once you know that she got plastic surgery she she got elective surgery to change the way she looks there's this obvious crisis of identity who is she Mm -hmm. she just lost her husband she just lost a kid she doesn't know who she is you kind of get a maybe even a crisis of like career because she Mm -hmm. never does anything like she doesn't go back to the studio there's never a call for a job we know she is famous because the kids talk about it but we don't see her ever get a casting call the studio doesn't call to check on her so there's this interesting crisis of identity throughout the movie where we don't know who the mom is and kind of neither does
1: she. So that 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 that's also interesting. So I didn't think that the pictures of, were of the mom, uh, all the blurry pictures. I just thought they were like avant-garde pictures because it matched the aesthetic of literally the rest of the house. It's all yeah. very modern. Very cold. Everything is like very cold and clean and you know mm-hmm. it's extremely modern until you get to the kids room and then like you... <laughs> The kids' room has like little bugs on the wallpaper And that's really funny Because they keep cockroaches as pets I tried to find something about Keeping cockroaches as pets Can't really find anything So um, I, I have a guess um, Because I mentioned that they're twins right So there's mm-hmm. this concept of
0: repetition Because Lucas and Ilias are kind of uh, They're not really made distinct Personality wise Now that's partially because Lucas is A manifestation of Elias's mind but there's not a distinction made they're kind of two parts of the same whole and ants all work as one unit but they all look identical and cockroaches do the same thing they all look Mm -hmm. identical but they're this sort of writhing mass so there's this sort of concept of like repetition and copying where they they mimic each other they they have things that mimic each other it's it's this neat like and because they're twins, everything is the same. There are, there are two mm-hmm. toothbrushes, there are two beds, there are two sets of outfits. They always have the same thing on, like the same style of clothes. Like it's always a tank top and shorts, this specific sweater or, or, or something, or a long sleeve shirt or whatever.
1: And I also, yeah, found their house fascinating because their house is literally, like, so open. It looks like it's made of windows. Mm -hmm. So it feels like, you know, it would be like a vacation house, you know, Mm -hmm. where you could always look out and see the woods and stuff. But it's not. The blinds are always drawn to where it's always, like, keeping the sun out. It's always keeping out reality of what's going on. Yeah. So that they can just kind of hide and seclude themselves in there. I mean, that's um, just another
0: level of isolation.
1: Yeah, they're, they're exactly. in the middle and,
0: of nowhere, cutting off their windows.
1: Yeah, and the only time that the blinds are like raised or opened is when, like, the only time that was it was a really important thing It's kind of like when... I guess the mom finally realizes what the kids are doing because like it's like she realizes oh god my kid might be like attempting to harm me and at the same time like you can see the kids like going around opening the blinds and I'm like oh that's, that's interesting symbolism it's kind of like you know opening your eyes like oh this is really what's fucking going on this mm-hmm. is terrible and then what do they do the red cross people come and they're like oh bye close the blinds like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope shut out the world again and also the little town that they venture to like you never see anybody except for one person that's walking down the street and they're like playing this little concertina thing and then you see the priest and you see whatever what i don't know sure deacon priest helper altar boy whatever <laughs> the sweepy guy he's like oh he's here but i can get him for you you know that's he's all you weird. ever see like so it kind of adds to another level of escapism and isolation because like the town just seems empty like there's no one there it's super sleepy super small you know so going back crazy. to what we were
0: talking about earlier that guy like so I know that one of the reasons that I wondered if this was their actual home is because whenever they go into the church, it's not just that the priest talks to the mom in a sort of seemingly knowing way, like he knows the situation, but the that, that altar boy deacon guy, the guy sweeping up the church that's not the priest, he seems like uncomfortable around them. And he seems kind of mm-hmm. like creepy and awkward, but also it seems like maybe he's uncomfortable because he knows what happened. That's kind of the vibe I got. Yeah. Like, he knows, oh, this is that boy whose brother died. We don't know that at the time, but that's kind of the vibe Mm -hmm. I get get in retrospect once you know.
1: There's a lot of, like, little tiny things that you don't pick up on the first time you watch it. And then the second time you watch it, you're like, oh, God, there's some things that go wrong in this film that just you kind of glaze over because Mm -hmm. you're so caught up in all the the mom mystery stuff you know yeah like the uh, well for me i was just like caught up in the imagery of like all these landscapes of austria and stuff and i was like so pretty and you know like you kind of miss little points like at one point very early in the movie she like does an inspection of their room and she finds that lighter Mm -hmm. in his bed and she's like what are you doing with this and then later you know, they're like walking around fields fucking around and that guy's like haze on fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they're they kind of just standing there watching it burn. And then you realize, you know, that the farmer's kind of yelling at them, but he's kind of obscured by the heat, mm-hmm. haze and the smoke. So it's unclear if he's yelling at them to get away or if he's yelling at them because they set fire, which I'm pretty sure they set fire to it. And, you know, that moment where one of them is playing the piano and the other one is literally like killing bug magnifying nuts. glass mm. that part where that guy delivers the groceries and he's like oh there's a lot of pepperoni pizzas you guys seem to like pepperoni pizzas and the first time i was like uh-huh. she's just buying them easy stuff that they can make themselves but now i kind of feel like they might have taken over the grocery order. And been like oh, i want all the pepperoni pizzas see because actually- we're gonna put mom in lockdown or something you know like the way I took that was that
0: the reason he was saying you must like pepperoni pizzas is because, and the way that read to me, especially because I'd seen the film before, is that this is how much pizza they would have ordered for two yeah. boys, but oh, there's only yeah. one yeah. boy now. So he's like, wow, this is a fuck ton of pepperoni pizza for one kid. He never says explicitly yeah. that, but that's the implication. So it's like the idea that the, they're still ordering for two, even though there's only mm-hmm. one now. Um, yeah. And also, like, there's a scene. So It was a little scene and it was it was weird but i noticed that one of the one of the scenes they're getting ready for bed and uh ilias is brushing his teeth and he like spits and then he calls for lucas to come in and there's only one toothbrush out they use the same toothbrush the other one is in the cup and like never gets touched Mm -hmm. and it's just this little moment of like there's two brothers but there's only one toothbrush because they're only using yeah there's there's only one brother
1: (laughs) yeah that was interesting too because like you see one leave the shot they hold the shot on the sink and then you see the other one come back in and like start to brush his teeth i Mm -hmm. think if i remember correctly and i was like it's very interesting that in that particular shot you'd never see them both together Mm -hmm. they're just like one does the thing and he's like okay and then you know the other one does the thing yeah fascinating uh, there was another scene that the first time i was like whatever and then now that i watched it the second time i was like what the fuck was going on with that um and it's the cat so like they find the cat it's dead i don't really know what happened to it it like was kind of hiding next to the water heater so i I kind of got the vibe that it was dying anyway like because they found it in
0: like a crypt yeah or,
1: or something like, some sort yeah. of, like,
0: family memorial, up like, above-ground tomb.
1: Yeah, it looked like, kind of like, they found it in a mausoleum. Yeah, and that's so what, they, that's were what gonna I was looking for, a mausoleum. <laughs> take care of it, and then it died. It happens sometimes in the wintertime, too, around here. Like, stray cats will go up into your engine at night mm. because it's warm, and then they'll accidentally, like, die because, you know, it's hot in there, and mm. also it's an engine, and so you can accidentally turn it on and kill him so uh, like the cat was found next to the water heater so i was like well you know it's possible it could have just died next to the water heater because it was warm you know something like that and the thing that i never noticed was like it seems like several days before they empty out that cockroach thing fill it with those chemicals and put the cat in it Mm -hmm. and then they're like mom what did you do to the cat And she's like, why the fuck did you put it in chemicals? You know, and they they both go crazy and no one ever does anything with the cat. Yeah. Like that is weird and surprising and says so much about all of their characters because it's just a dead cat sitting. By the time you get to the end of the film and, you know, they light it on fire because Mm -hmm. they're trying to freak out the mom. It's kind of like murky and gross because it's been sitting there for so long. Yep. Just floating in these chemicals. They actually
0: establish early in the movie one of their clues for who she is because she's holding that thing which by the way uh, identity again she, her her character in the game is herself mom oh yeah and uh, she can't identify herself she can't yeah. identify herself but one of the things that they say is that she cares about animals that she's an animal lover but she doesn't react with horror at the cat uh-huh. she reacts with like what the fuck guys but not like mm-hmm. not the like horror that you would expect from finding your children have suspended a dead cat and alcohol
1: like it's a black widow uh, that you caught and stuck in a jar like i know not to mention like what were those chemicals and why did they have so much of it that you could fill like a small aquarium i think it was just alcohol. with it because
0: like cause it that m- is like, so much alcohol like, but i remember that um our stepbrother did that because he caught a black widow once. It was a good size, like quarter size black widow, oh, and he yeah. had it in a in a jar of alcohol that he had sealed. So you keep it and like it was basically preserved like that.
1: Yeah. It just doesn't. That is a normal amount of alcohol. You can probably get it out of one or two bottles that you get at the pharmacy. The (laughs) amount of alcohol that they had was like gallon jugs and they were like into the aquarium. And I was like, who has that much on hand? And what is it for? There's a lot of boo-boos, man. Oh, my God. (laughs) Gotta clean a lot of scraped knees. I guess. Yeah, that's true. When you have that many windows, you got to. You gotta have that much cleaner so <laughs> <laughs> so there's one more thing i want to touch
0: on i want to talk about kind of two things but they're related which is preservation and memory because both of the movies have this interesting interplay with preservation and memory the way that Elias keeps lucas alive is by pretending he's not gone they don't want their mom to change like they're they're terrified that this new face is not actually their mom. In in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, you see a similar thing, because Jane is really tragic, if you think about it. Like, I mean, yes, she's spoiled, and yes, she's a monster, but the trajectory of her life is really sad, because she starts Mm. out extremely successful. Everyone wants to see her. She literally has a doll made after her likeness, and then she's gone. She's literally lost to history, because she's a vaudeville performer all of her stuff is live there is nothing anyone can remember because it's not like they have recordings or video they can go back and watch her stuff is if you weren't there you don't know who she is and she encounters that throughout the entire rest of the movie every time she meets somebody who's younger she's like don't you know me i'm baby jane and they have no fucking clue who baby jane is because baby jane was a child star in the teens not Mm -hmm. in the 60s but her sister blanche is remembered and is beloved because she found her success on film, in movies. Her stuff is captured. She literally can, she has the luxury of being able to watch old performances and critique it and say, oh, I told them to do this, but she's remembered. Her neighbors remember her. Her neighbors know who she is. Her neighbors are watching the same reruns that she is. Jane? Nothing. All she has is the sheet music and singing that song again because there is no preservation of her performance. Which got me interested in when did reruns happen? Like, when did, specifically movies, when did they start showing movies on TV? Because there was a time where even movies, once it was out of theaters, it was gone. If you missed it, sorry, bucko. Come see another movie some other time. That one's gonzo. So I got interested in... In, in when we started when our perspective of movies shifted where it was something that we did preserve and could re-watch big movies would get re-released like The Wizard of Oz and You're Gone with the Winds your like huge movies would occasionally get put back out into theaters and, and shown around and they, and they also did things like road shows where they would do sort of like a touring show of a particular movie the first movie that was ever aired on TV was in 1933 actually and it was a movie hmm. called The Crooked Circle it was some sort of like crime, drama, comedy thing. And it was shown really locally to like a, it was like one station in California that, that broadcast this movie locally in the area. But it wasn't really like a thing until the 50s. And in the 50s, television started becoming more and more popular and Hollywood freaked out because they saw television as this huge threat because they made all their money from people going to the movie theater and why would someone go to the movie theater when they can just stay home and watch TV? So they started employing all of these gimmicks. That's where you get things like widescreen formatting which was specifically set up against the the formatting of TV so that if you like if, if you came to the movie you'd see this oh, there's so much more picture. It's widescreen. And that's where they came up with like stereo sound because TVs would have mono sound. So if you came to the movie theater, it would play in stereo. And that's where they had like 3D. If you come to the movie theater, the images will jump out at you. And the biggest guy, uh, horror, of course, that was famous for this was William (laughs) Castle because he did things like he released a movie called The Tingler and he at least in some theaters, had electricity run into seats so that when the tingler happened on screen, people in the audience, some of them, like a few of them, would get shocked and literally they would feel the tingler. Uh, (laughs) When he did a showing of the house on Haunted Hill, he had like skeleton figures suspended from the ceiling. And there were certain moments in the movie where it wasn't just 3D. It was like ultra 3D because he would literally swing this skeleton figure out at the audience to make them feel like they were in the movie. And that's also when huge blockbusters became a thing, like your Your Ten Commandments and your Ben-Hurs, because they were like, well, if we want to get people out of their houses and into the movie theater, they need to see something epic, something big that they just couldn't see at home. The first, the, they, the first time that a movie was promoted on TV, because they didn't promote movies on TV, was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. And that proved to be very successful. It got people into the theater. But television viewing increased and theatrical audiences decreased. Eventually, Hollywood started making things for uh, television audiences. And uh, the first Hollywood feature film that was shown on TV was The Wizard of Oz in 1956. (laughs) And then that was so successful that NBC in 1961... They were the first network to present to premiere a a thing it was a block called Saturday Night at the Movies where they would play movies on TV for people to rewatch and other it was so popular that other networks copied it and that became a thing like all the way through the 70s and in, even into the 90s like when we what was it dinner and a movie was on TBS yep. that we used to watch and yep. so where you could cook a meal
1: and also watch a movie at the mm-hmm. same
0: time so that's that it was it wasn't until the 50s and really the sixties that movies on TV became a thing, but it was, it's, it was extremely timely theatrical movies being rerun on TV in good. And whatever happened to baby Jane was only like five or six years old at the time, the movie takes place. So it's the, of course it would be like a stick in Jane's side because it's a thing that it's new even before then, you know, movie theaters movies when they're out they're they're out you don't get to rewatch them but now all of a sudden they're able to dredge up her sister's old successes and sort of reignite her limelight jane mm-hmm. still gets forgotten okay i think that about does it if you want to join the discussion and share your own thoughts with us, hit us up online. We're on Twitter at Eerie underscore Earfuls. Our email is eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. And our website is eerieearfuls, all one word,
1: You can subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and many, many, many other places. If you like the show, please spread the word. And if you're feeling extra generous, we'd love if you'd left us a review. Our
0: theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Native Chaos, also both by Kevin McLeod. Find more of his music at Incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone.
1: Oh, Uh-oh. God damn it. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> Fuck hell. I know. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> shut up. Everybody shut up. This is why I have 15 fans on when, I, <laughs> when I'm i asleep at night so that they don't hear something and go. <laughs> <laughs> they're the worst. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to.
0: Oh, God. No. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> Woo! Starting at 110. Hey, everyone! Hey, <laughs> hey kid! <laughs> Binky the clown. <laughs>